Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to the EG Live podcast, a production of the European Journal of International Law. My name is Michal Salipernik, and I am a member of the EGL editorial team. With me are Dapo Akande and Antonios Tsanakopoulos from the University of Oxford, and Tom Rice and Felipe Rodriguez-Sylvester from Ghent University. Hello, Dapo. Hi, Michal. It's very nice to be with you today. Hello, Antonios. Hi, Michal. Thanks for the invitation. Very nice to be here. Hello, Tom. Hello, Michal. Uh, it's a pleasure to join the conversation and thank you for hosting. And hello, Felipe. Hello, Michal. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. In the last issue of 2021, EGIL has launched a new rubric titled Legal Illegal. This rubric features essays assessing the legality or illegality under international law of recent events in the world. The first installment of this series was written in the aftermath of the second Nagorno-Karabakh war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. In September 2020, Azerbaijan began a military attack against Armenia with the primary goal of regaining control over the area of Nagorno-Karabakh, occupied by Armenia in 1994. This event brought to the fore an intriguing legal question which bears implication for many other conflicts, including, as we will discuss later, the current war between Russia and Ukraine. The question is, when a state uses force to recover a part of its territory that was occupied by another state many years earlier, can such use of force be considered a lawful act of self-defense? Felipe and Tom, you reply to this question in the negative, Antonio Sendapo, you reply in the positive. Let us begin with the illegal team. Felipe and Tom, please convince me. Why is it illegal for a state to use force in self-defense after a prolonged occupation? Okay, well, uh, thank you, Michael, for, for laying out the, uh, the, the overarching question. Um, not sure we'll be able to convince you throughout, throughout this talk. Uh, but let me first start by saying that this is indeed a challenging question to which there is no author authoritative answer. And so there is no firm conclusion, legal doctrine, or in, in case law. And as you mentioned, the recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in, in late 2020 really brought to the fore this, this question once more. A question that, of course, has implications for a variety of other um, other uh, territorial disputes, whether one thinks of um, the current situation in the Golan Heights, or whether one thinks of the Northern Republic of, or the self-proclaimed Northern Republic of, uh, Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. But there's much more of those um, uh, lingering conflicts, lingering territorial disputes, for which this question would be of, I think, uh, vital importance. So as you mentioned, uh, Felipe and, and myself, uh, we argue indeed in the paper that a um, state that has lost uh, part of its territory uh, potentially many years or even decades ago, uh, loses the right to exercise self-defense in order to recover its uh, lost territory after, um, after a period of time, uh, when indeed that territory has become subject to the peaceful administration by the occupying state. Um, and, and we've tried to look at this from a number of perspectives. Um, and we, we started with, the let's say, the conceptual perspective, 
uh, where we made the argument that the right of self-defense is subject, of course, to a number of conditions, including uh, the immediacy requirement, which is often linked to necessity. And immediacy implies that there should be a reasonable uh, nexus in time between the initial armed attack uh, that triggers the right of self-defense and the exercise of the right. Right? Clearly, uh, there, there's this debate as to whether occupation itself can be seen as a continuing armed attack. Uh, our position would be that the occupation, in a way, is a, of course, continuing breach of international law, a continuing breach of the prohibition on the use of force, but uh, not so much a continuing armed attack that would uh, keep the right of self-defense in existence for years or even decades in a row. Right. Uh, so th there's the, the immediacy element, and of course, and that can be linked to another vital uh, principle of international law, namely the duty of non-use of force to settle territorial disputes. Right. And if if one were to assume that indeed a victim state can uh, still invoke self-defense after years or even decades and what have you, and then the argument is, of course, that that would uh, almost swallow in its entirety the principle on the non-use of force to settle territorial disputes. So that is, in a way, the conceptual narrative. Uh, we added two additional layers to the argument. Um, first, we also looked at relevant state practice, which admittedly is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, there, there's um, a number of occasions that could be seen as cases where a victim seeks to use force to recover lost territory. I think of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, or let's say at the recent conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. But uh, it's much it's difficult to draw firm conclusions from that practice, in the sense that in both of these occasions, for instance, the states resorting to force, they both um, claim to be acting. Uh, by way of a counteroffensive uh, in response to a more recent attacks. So they, they refrain from actually evoking the idea that there is this uh, lingering right of self-defense that survives the ages in a way. Um, and, and then lastly, of course, uh, there's this, the te teleological dimension. Um, I guess that the argument that we make, it, it can, can strike as, as unfair. Uh, there is something to say uh, that, that it's difficult to accept that uh, a state uh, must Acknowledge must accept loss of territory simply due to the um, to uh, the, the passage of time. At the same time, I think the complex the story is more complex than that. There are a number of competing considerations. There is, of course, uh, the vital importance um, attached to principles of uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity. But at the same time, we see that the charter, of course, plays much emphasis equally on uh, the maintenance of peace and security, on the uh, obligation to settle disputes by peaceful means. And of course, also on the protection of, of life, of, of uh, the human right to life, which is clearly affected when uh, frozen conflicts suddenly spring to life once more. Thank you so much, Tom. Antonio Sendapo, your paper takes a different view about the matter, right? Uh, yes, that's that's right, Michal. Um, really, it emerged out of uh, uh, Dapo and I teaching uh, international law and armed conflict here in Oxford and debating this uh, between ourselves and our students and and with Miles Jackson and um, uh, and we really um, we really should, we were really troubled by the idea and we were trying to figure out what the what the legal position would be and I think we came to the to the conclusion that in particular circumstances that is for example when there is no dispute over sovereignty um and we make that clear um like for example uh, there is none in 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 cyprus um or uh, like there is uh, none in the case of um 
of Nagorno-Karabakh, where it is um, accepted by the international community that sovereignty is with Azerbaijan. The use of force in self-defense to recover, to recover a territory or a piece of territory that has been unlawfully occupied uh, by another state as a direct result of an armed attack uh, must um, must be considered legal. It must uh, it must be accepted that um, that uh, there is a continuing armed attack as as long as the unlawful situation of occupation um, continues. Uh, so that would uh, trigger the right of self-defense. Of course, um, uh, Tom and Philippa are right when they talk about the immediacy requirement, which uh, connects to necessity. I guess we take a different view with DAPO when it comes to um, this immediacy and necessity requirement, because we do um, say that, uh, in particular, the long time uh, during which the territory may have been under occupation may actually... Um, um, lead to a fulfillment of the necessity requirements later in the future because it may show um, that the state that has suffered the armed attack um, and the occupation of its territory has actually tried to um, uh, to deal with this armed attack and with the occupation in all sorts of other ways, um, engaging in diplomatic measures and so on and so forth. And having exhausted this uh, these measures and not having any other um, option, uh, it resorts to uh, force in self-defense um to to take back uh, the territory um the the other consideration i suppose is um the teleological consideration that is um, so I, just to add and 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 this in a way deals with the whole peaceful settlement of disputes um uh, requirement because of course you're not actually settling a dispute here. There is no dispute as to sovereignty of the territory. Um, what there is, is an armed attack that has led to an occupation. Um, and presumably there is also no serious disagreement as to whether that has happened or not, as for example, in Cyprus. Um, or if you want, as, as it is today, or it was in 2004 with Russia and Crimea, I mean, there's no serious disagreement that uh, Crimea is is in the territory of Ukraine, or that there was an unlawful use of force on the part of Russia uh, to to um, to take over and, and occupy that territory. Um, now, when it comes to the teleological argument, um, very quickly we can say it, uh, and we acknowledge, of course, that Tom and Felipe also acknowledge sort of like the um, the the difficulty here. Um, we do think it is very very important that it 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 sounds. Um, and it is in the in the final analysis completely unfair to to the weaker side to just say, oh, sorry, you were weak enough to lose your territory, um, and the other side was strong enough to establish some sort of administration um, while you were pursuing peaceful means or other ways or engaging the international community in order to solve that. Well, that's too bad for you. You've just lost your right of self-defense, and what has been created now is some sort of dispute over the territory that needs to be resolved by peaceful means. Not that we don't. Uh, that, that we're not all in favor for resolving things with peaceful means, but, uh, by, or by peaceful means, but essentially what remains is that in law there must remain, and it only makes sense that there must remain in the final analysis, um, uh, subject to necessity and proportionality, of course, um, a right for the state that has been um, attacked um, and, it, um, and has lost its territory because of that attack to be able to recover it uh, lawfully by, by self-defense. And I guess I'll leave it there.
Thank you very much, Antonios. So I want to ask you again about the, the doctrinal basis, because you're saying, I think, two important things. First, that the prolonged occupation that resulted from an unlawful use of force is in itself an ongoing armed attack, right? Even if there is no uh, use of force, no fighting during the occupation. And you're also saying that any response should be considered immediate, even if there are no hostilities for many years. I think this understanding of the terms armed attack and immediacy is not very common and may even be counterintuitive for some people. Can you elaborate a bit more on this fundamental doctrinal question? Maybe I can take this one, uh, Mehal. So, yeah, this is a this is an important point. The basic point being that the end of hostilities does not indicate the end of an armed attack. Now, you say it's not a common understanding of the word armed attack, and I suppose if you just take those words in their literal meaning, you might think, well, armed attack means ongoing hostilities. But actually, I would suggest that the idea that end of hostilities does not signal the end of an armed attack is actually uh, quite common. And what I mean by that is that we do have cases where hostilities have come to an end in the sense that the fighting has come to an end, but it's accepted that the right to self-defense continues. So a good example of this would be the Argentinian invasion of the Falkland Islands. The fighting came to an end very quickly, but nonetheless, it was still accepted that the UK had a right to act in self-defense. Now, you could maybe also think about what happened when Iraq invaded and occupied Kuwait in 1990. In the end, ultimately, the legal basis for that was the Security Council authorization. But actually, right up until when the, um, when the US and others used force, there were still people arguing that Kuwait had a right to self-defense and that um, others could come to its aid. Now, in those cases that I've just mentioned, the Falkland Islands, it was probably, I don't know, about six weeks. And maybe in the case of um, Iraq and Kuwait, we're thinking of something around four or five months. But the fact remains that the end of the hostilities did not bring to an end the idea that a right to self-defense actually uh, continued to exist. So the only question then really is what changes if we accept, and I think it is accepted by many, and I, and I think even Tom and Felipe accept this as well, that the mere end of hostilities doesn't mean that an armed attack has come to an end. The question is, is there something further that changes that when the occupation becomes prolonged? And our argument is no, that the armed attack continues insofar as the occupation continues to be maintained by force. Thank you, Dapo. So, Felipe, Tom, do you have a, a clear answer to this question? When exactly uh, uh, the armed attack ends? Yes, Tom? Well, uh, no clear answer, I'm afraid, but on, on the, the two examples given by Dapo, um, these examples are mostly cited to confirm the existence of this immediacy requirement, right? And to indicate that immediacy must be understood in a way in a flexible manner. For instance, when a country is invaded, and there may be a need to mobilize troops to get organized. In the case of the Falklands, there was a need to get the, the uh, naval vessels of the uh, the British naval vessels to the other side of the globe, for instance, so that this accommodate for a certain lapse of time. At the same time, there is a major difference 
in a case where there is a lapse of several weeks or even months between the initial invasion of, of foreign land and the response of self-defense on the one hand, and an instance where there's a passage of m- many years in a row where indeed, as, as mentioned before, that is, I think, a crucial criterion when there's a peaceful administration of set territory by the occupying state. Uh, so I do not think that the two examples uh, really contradict our position. And, and perhaps I, I would come back to something that, that Antonio said before. Um, and and I, I greatly appreciate the, the effort of, of Dapa Antonius to somehow find a more just compromise between what would otherwise be two very um, uh, juxtaposed um, um, alternatives. But to somehow say that, let's say, Cyprus is not a dispute over sovereignty, um, I find it difficult to accept that that would be excluded from discussion um, as opposed to other cases, right? In, in, in respect of Crimea, um, I'm not sure if Antonius is su- suggesting that there is no dispute over ser- sovereignty, but clearly Russia does think that there is one, right? Um, Russia and Ukraine clearly have opposite views as to uh, the, the sovereign title over Crimea. Um, and now amongst international lawyers, and there would be, of course, uh, presumably widespread agreement that this is still uh, belongs to, to Ukrainian territory, and that's been confirmed, uh, one might say, in the resolution adopted by the General Assembly. But to say that this is not somehow a dispute over sovereignty is difficult to accept. And if one would follow that reasoning, does that mean that in the case of Crimea, Ukraine would be what excluded from uh, continuing to exercise its self-defense as opposed to situation, a, a different scenarios. Thank you, Tom. So, Dafo and Antonius, you can reply in a minute, but perhaps we can take you, Felipe and Tom, to the other main aspect of self-defense, which might be less of your comfort zone, I would say, which is a, a necessity. So, in their paper, Dafo and Antonius say, well, there is a principle that says that uh, we should settle disputes by peaceful means. But they ask, but what if that doesn't work, right? What if there is a territorial dispute arising out of a military occupation and the parties are, are trying to reach a peaceful settlement, but uh, it figures out that they cannot do it for 10 or 20 or 30 years? Doesn't that indicate, in fact, that it is necessary to use force? Don't you think that we should not wait forever until the dispute is settled peacefully? Um, thanks, Michal. I'll be taking this question. And indeed, I think this um, a specific point marks uh, like a, a very big distinction between our paper and Professor Zakan and Sanakopoulos' paper, which is basically the role of immediacy and uh, its effect on self-defense and also the role of the obligation to settle disputes peacefully. Uh, so, as Tom explained, our, the overarching idea in our paper is that the right of self-defense ceases, while um, Dapo and Antonio's point is that the obligation to settle disputes peacefully merely gets suspended while parties look for a, a peaceful solution. So, according to their position, this, I mean, after 10 years or 20 years, it would be a clear indication that, well, the parties were not able to, to find a solution, something that could definitely happen in, in real life. However, we do not believe, uh, I think this goes uh, counter to one of their main arguments, which is uh, they rightly uh, criticize our point uh, regarding a status quo. And when that, when does this status quo forms? When does it change? When does it materialize, basically? When does the right of self-defense ceases and we have this new peaceful administration? However, what they're proposing is that instead of assessing or making this uh, assessment of 
when the status quo materializes, um, we now need to assess, according to them, when peaceful means have been exhausted, which is such a subjective um, assessment to be done, even, I would say, even more than looking at whether hostilities have completely ceased, whether administration has been peaceful for 10 years, for 20 years, um, which at least has the time frame, and we can look at the facts, same as it is in IHL, we can look at the facts on the ground. So we believe that this assessment is, is far more possible than actually assessing whether peaceful means have been exhausted, especially in an obligation like the obligation to to settle disputes by peaceful means, which seems to be ever-present, because in our paper, we don't argue that this obligation only kicks in when self-defense ceases, because uh, we argue that actually they are... Um, they coexist even during an armed conflict. There's this obligation to try at least for, to settle the dispute by peaceful means. Um, but yeah, that, that's our main argument with that in, in relation to that. Thank you very much, Felipe. So just one more question, perhaps actually to you, Dapo and Antonios, about the difficulty of defining the most basic legal terms in such complicated situations. The question is about the lawfulness of the original use of force. In your paper, you say that the condition for a state to retain the right to self-defense for a long time is that the original occupation was the result of an unlawful use of force. And then Tom and uh, Felipe uh, say in their paper, well, it is really hard to tell whether the original use of force uh, that resulted in the occupation was uh, lawful or not. You just have to look around us, right? In many cases, uh, you mentioned the Golan Heights, Syria and Israel. You mentioned Northern Cyprus. And in many other cases, uh, this is a very contested question, right? Whether the original use of force was lawful or not. So... Isn't that a problem, this indeterminacy, the fact that we will never agree on the question whether a state is allowed to use self-defense eternally or not? Um, yes, Michal, isn't it a problem? Yes, it is a problem, except it's uh, not our problem. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'll tell you why I think that is. But if I can just uh, go back to a couple of things that Tom said, because they actually relate, um, and, and Felipe, because this they actually relate to what we're about to say. Um, so, for example... Uh, uh, Tom responded to, to the examples given by DAPO um, uh, by saying, oh, well, if you have to go halfway across the world and there is some understanding that you need to take time sort of like to send your fleet and so on in, in, uh, in the case of the, of the UK responding to, the, to Argentina and so, and so on and so forth. Let me make this really clear by just going World War II on you. And apologies, but I think it makes it clear. France was invaded by the Nazis and taken over within weeks. A peaceful administration was established for, I don't know how many years, many years are, but, it w- but a peaceful administration was established for um, a good uh, three and a half, four years. Um, now, if we are to take the argument by Tom and Felipe on its face, technically the Allies had no right to use force to liberate France. They, they should have gone to dispute settlement with the Nazis. Um, which goes to the point about, um, well, we don't really know everything's indeterminate and so on and so forth. Quite a lot of things are indeterminate in international law, and that is because states disagree um, with respect to a particular thing. States make the law, states determine the law, um, and, and we figure out what the content of the law is in any given case by looking at whether there is some general consensus among states um, as to a particular reading and application of the law in any particular case. We do have clear cases. 
Yes, many are disputed, um, and that's why we have disputes, um, um, but many are not. So when you have, like you have in the case of Cyprus, um, Security Council resolutions um, that basically, um, that has not been challenged uh, seriously as to their legality by anyone, um, and uh, states are complying with them, and um, resolutions of the General Assembly with huge majority, or even when the Security Council cannot act, when you have General Assembly resolutions with a large majority, um, then you can't really say there's a dispute going on anymore simply because one state that is the aggressor state keeps saying, oh, actually, I have some legal uh, arguments and you need to take them into consideration. Um, and, this, and this, you can clearly see it um, in this instance with uh, the, the Russian invasion of, uh, of, um, of Ukraine, both in 2014 and today. I mean, yes, they've put forward some legal argument, but is there any serious argument that these arguments are actually accepted? I haven't seen one. The General, the General Assembly has responded. Uh, now, to say that there is actually a sovereignty dispute over Crimea, I don't think that many international lawyers will, will agree on that. In particular, because what that does is basically it allows a militarily powerful state to just create a territorial dispute whenever it wants, but just invading. I mean, surely that can't be the situation here. Now, of course, this is not to say that there are no situations where there is actually um, a dispute where it is difficult to tell whether there is indeterminacy. And in those situations, these, but these are situations that we have um, sort of like excluded from the analysis. But the fact that there are indeterminate situations doesn't mean that there are no determinate ones, is our point. So sometimes you can clearly tell who the aggressor is. And these are the cases that we're talking about. Thank you, Antonius. So, Felipe and Tom, uh, I think you all agree about this uh, uh, realpolitik fact, right? That sometimes uh, we know who the aggressor is and, and also that sometimes it is very clear that a country is too weak to, uh, to respond at a certain point. For example, France uh, during World War II uh, uh, could not uh, or uh, supposedly uh, was not able to Uh, to oppose the German occupation until it was able to a few years later. So, and, and there are many other cases like that uh, uh, where a country is uh, uh, too weak to, to respond. The power relations are so clear, um, uh, so unbalanced in favor of the uh, aggressor. But then maybe at some point power relations change, right? Or maybe the occupied state can use the help of other countries uh, um, to act in collective self-defense. So is it fair not to allow the, the weak country to wait until it is able to react, to wait until the, the, the power relations change or until it can use collective self-defense? Or uh, you think it's, it's okay to tell the aggressor, okay, you can choose the time when the fighting uh, happens? Okay, maybe I'll uh, take uh, this question. Uh, just in, in response to what Antonio said, I'm not going all World War II on Antonio's, but I think that uh, the, the World War is, is a bit of a more complex story than, than uh, as it is presented here, of course, and it was also a government in exile. This was a regional war uh, that, that uh, continued for many years in a row, so uh, it's a bit It's a bit of a simplification to say that this was a peaceful administration of territory without further ado. And in addition, of course, this is something that predated the Charter of the United Nations. And I noticed that this is being used in a way as a cutoff point in, in, the, in the analysis of, of Dapa and Antonios. Right? They say that their argument actually uh, relates to uh, those cases of manifestly unlawful use of force that uh, post-date the adoption of the Charter. So it's a bit of a 
uh, it's a bit tricky to then invoke the, the World War as, a, as an example and support. But coming to your point, what about um, the fairness of um, forcing the weaker party to respond immediately as opposed to at a later stage when it might be able to garner support and what have you? It may indeed be unfair, and it is not what we're uh, contesting in a way, but it, I do not think that it does change the, the outcome of the analysis. And keep in mind, of course, that at the initial start of the of the attack of the invasion occupation what have you that of course even a weaker party can also mobilize support in the international community and i think this is also what we're witnessing today with the ongoing conflict between ukraine and russia we're seeing uh, widespread support not only in, in terms of declarations being made and condemnations of uh, the, the russian uh, attack but also in, in terms of the sanctions that are being adopted, right, of uh, support in terms of, of weaponry being provided to the Ukrainian armed forces. So that does signal that the weaker party can at times also, uh, if not rely on direct military involvement of, of other countries, there are other ways um, in which the international legal order provides tools to assist at the weaker states. And let's not forget, of course, that there is also the additional uh, principle, fundamental principle, that any uh, conquest achieved by unlawful means will not be recognized. And there is a duty, evidently, not to recognize the resulting scenario and not to assist in maintaining that scenario. That's, of course, a vital norm that will be put to the test uh, even more in the coming uh, years, but, but we shouldn't lose sight of it. Thank you, Tom. We'll get back to this question of power relations immediately. Um, but I want to ask, because we speak only about the states and their interests and their powers. But I want to ask you, perhaps you, Dapo and Antonius, about the people who live in the occupied territories. What about their interests? What about their uh, legitimate expectations? Right? When you say that at any point in time, even after 20 or 30 or 40 years, the state who lost its territory can use force to, to regain it. Is it fair, speaking of fairness, toward the population in the occupied territory? You know, in many cases, the, the occupier introduces new law into the occupied territory. Life are changing. People are planning their lives accordingly, living their life, getting used to the new uh, regime. And then one day, without asking them, without any negotiation, without perhaps having a referendum, the, uh, the former owner of the territory just, boom, comes in, okay? Think about, I don't know, uh, the Golan Heights again. Uh, after more than 50 years, people there may feel Israeli and uh, may or may not wish to, to go back to uh, uh, under uh, Syria uh, control. The same goes for northern Cyprus. And the same goes maybe for Nagorno-Karabakh. So I think that, you know, through negotiations, you can perhaps in some way ask them for their preferences. And when you allow for the use of force, you don't see them, do you? Thanks, Michal. Maybe I'll take this one. Um, I think you're right to say we should think about the, the fate of the people who are in the territory. And of course, because we're talking about the use of force, it's always going to be it's always going to be a very difficult and unfortunate situation. Whatever one talks about, the original invasion, obviously they wouldn't have been asked. And in the original situation, they are put in a very difficult situation. And I don't think anyone can pretend that, um, that you know, this is either way, whatever happens, is necessarily going to be smooth. But the first thing that I would say is that, first of all, of course, you don't no, you don't know what the, the population wants. 
Secondly, you're asking, should we ask them? Well, if we say we should ask them, then in effect, what we've done is we have created a different scenario from what international law ordinarily allows. So we've allowed by means of aggression, because that's what we're talking about here, we're introducing something that says that because of aggression, you should then have a different principle as to how you determine who has sovereignty over the territory. And I think that would be unfortunate if aggression actually then means that you get to have an extra principle which you don't have in the absence of, of that aggression. However, the main thing actually that I would say in response to you is actually to come back to a point that Tom made in his, in his last answer. So this is the, the principle that territory cannot be acquired by force, right? Conquest no longer gives a valid basis to title. And this is a huge shift in, in international law and in international relations. If as a result of an act of aggression, what we're now saying is that there is then a presumption that this territory sort of belongs to the aggressor until the people who live there decide that it can go back to the original sovereign. What we're really saying is that we're going back on this fundamental rule of international law, that conquest does not actually give a basis for title because conquest in that case would then create a new rule. In other words, conquest would then actually give you a right, which you would otherwise not have as a result of that use of force. And I think that would really be an unfortunate situation in, in international law. It really would be a, a negation of um, what the, the charter was trying to accomplish and of the shift that we have seen in international relations in the last 75 years. Uh, thank you, Dapo. I, I, I see your point, but you know, uh, for example, in the context of Cyprus, the, uh, even the European Court of Human Rights at some point said, okay, we realize uh, that taking the property of uh, Greek Cyprus here in, North, in northern Cyprus was uh, uh, by the TRNC was unlawful. But now, after many years, perhaps we should find other solutions. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think about being uh, uh, perhaps a bit more pragmatic uh, when we are thinking about the, uh, the local population. And I think maybe... It's time to turn to, uh, in this context, to, to what's going on now in Ukraine and, uh, um, or, and also to what happened in 2014 in Ukraine. Uh, so maybe we go back to you, uh, uh, Tom and Felipe. So in 2014, uh, Russia occupied uh, parts of, uh, of the territory of Ukraine, uh, Crimea, uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and, 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 and maybe even, you know, uh, the population, some of, some of the population was happy with that uh, uh, in those territories. Ukraine itself uh, uh, did not react effectively. Maybe it could not react effectively. Uh, until when do you think Ukraine was allowed to react to the occupation of the eastern and, and southern territories of the country by, by Russia? So let's begin with 2014 and perhaps then move to what's going on today uh, in, in this place. 
Uh, well, uh, I think that with, with the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, one might say that there's never been any peaceful administration of territory, right? And so that seems to be beyond dispute. And the same goes, of course, with the ongoing conflict. Clearly, Ukraine can, in, in the eyes of uh, most of uh, the community of international laws, exercise its right of self-defense. Uh, and I would perhaps add that even if there were to be a short-term ceasefire concluded between the parties, for instance, for humanitarian reasons, for, for several days or even weeks, that would not of itself eclipse the right of Ukraine to exercise its uh, self-defense in a way, right? So it's rather a question of, of uh, years and row, decades, uh, where one can see a situation of peaceful administration unfolding, right? Whether or not that materialized in respect of Crimea, that's a, that's a more tricky issue. Uh, I don't think that there were any specific hostilities between Ukraine and Russia in respect of uh, the Crimean Peninsula, that the region itself was indeed administered peacefully. So there indeed one might perhaps uh, make the argument that um, if things would have not have went as they have gone in the past few days, that Ukraine would have lost its right to recover that um, territory by force. That is indeed uh, the uh, result of our analysis. Um, that might, may indeed strike as unfair, but let's not again forget what we mentioned before. Uh, there is, of course, uh, the possibility to invoke to to um, adopt sanctions, and those have been adopted also in response to the uh, occupation of Crimea. Uh, there is again the duty of non-recognition of conquests, and and I do disagree with Dapo very respectfully. So, of course, that. Uh, the fact that you cannot recover by force um, occupied territory, that that in itself, um, well, let's say, uh, completely destroys the duty of non-recognition, of uh, the, the principle of non-recognition of conquest, right? The same could be said in respect of on other fundamental norms of international law. Let's say that there is a occupation in, in violation of the right of self-determination, which is also a peremptory norm of international law, right? Let's think of the, 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 the Chagos um, Islands, um, how would one indeed say that the mere fact that Mauritius, for instance, cannot reclaim the Chagos by force, that that in a way destroys in this situation the right of self-determination or the resulting uh, duty not to recognize um, the consequences of, of a breach of self-determination? I don't think that the two can be set on par. Thank you, Tom. So I'm, I'm starting to think maybe Russia should not have been that concerned with the uh, possibility that Ukraine would join NATO. But after all, NATO is the collective self-defense uh, alliance, right? So it, it wouldn't be able to do anything at any <laughs> uh, at any point. Um, but I guess uh, Russia has some other uh, uh, concern and, uh, and incentives to act. Um, so, Felipe, uh, do you think the same applies to the current uh, occupations uh, in Ukraine? Because every day when we open the paper, we see that another uh, city, uh, unfortunately, uh, has been occupied by the Russian forces. Uh, so can I push you a little bit and ask you, so uh, until when, uh, assuming that at some point uh, Ukraine uh, surrenders or cannot fight anymore, and some new cities um, uh, um, remain under uh, Russia's control. Can you tell me how long will it have to, for example, uh, try to convince NATO to help it? Uh, one week, one month, how long? Um, well, I think um, even more in the current situation, we can see that there hasn't been a change in the status quo in the region. There's not a peaceful administration by Russia by any means, and we will not be seeing it in the near future. 
And that shows, I think, this whole debate, uh, there's two ways to look at it. Um, from a teleological perspective, uh, we see this sort of fight between peace against justice. But I think the debate is a little bit simplified because justice is only associated with the use of force and self-defense. While, as Tom explained, we do have uh, alternative avenues in this, what we're seeing in the current, in the current conflict. Surely, um, NATO and other states are, uh, for the time being, unwilling to join the fight and collect the self-defense. So that's one avenue that is not uh, available. But we've seen the supply of um, military equipment. Uh, we're seeing sanctions unprecedented. And while we disagree that occupation is a continuing arm attack, we do acknowledge that it is a continuing breach uh, of an international obligation. So as long as it lasts, countermeasures can be applied, sanctions being the, the most uh, relevant one to try to counter this, uh, this Russian threat. But like to a certain extent, we also have um, dispute settlement in international courts, uh, the recently approved uh, jurisdiction of the ICC over the crime of aggression. Um, but... If we put in the situation whether the other alternative would be the actual, um, if Ukraine was able to respond ad eternum, would it change uh, the outcome of the war? Would it, would it uh, turn the hegemon into a state that will, okay, so because they will be able to respond ad eternum, which maybe stop? I don't think it would. I don't think it would change the dynamics of power in the international community just because we have a more flexible approach to the use of force, because that's what it is in the end, um, being more permissible for the use of force in the future, in spite that we can, may consider it unjust, even if we have different avenues. So the, the last point I, I, I want to make regarding the implications of this debate for this conflict has to do with Crimea and Let's put in the other. Uh, let's put ourselves in the other situation. Whether Ukraine manages, with the help of its allies, to win this war and advance even to retake Crimea, what would happen then? Um, obviously, it would depend on whether we. Well, we can debate it, of course, if there was a status quo change over there, uh, whether there was a peaceful administration, whether there is a right to recover this territory by force, which is their own, or whether there's also a wrongful act by uh, using force in here. Um, but it is to see what will happen um, in our paper. I think it's in our big paper in the ALS. We claim that there could definitely be two wrongs, but that doesn't mean that the occupied state, which recovers this territory, is forced to sort of give it back or temporarily. Like, that's not the solution we're proposing. But yeah. Thank you, Felipe. So, uh, Antonios Dapo, final words about Crimea, Russia, or about self-defense more generally? Um, yeah, I mean, let me let me just go on a couple of things, just so that we don't don't uh, leave them unanswered. So, Tom's very right that we only only talk um, about the low post UN Charter. Um, of course, that's true, but um, the World War II argument is not an argument on the law. Uh, it's just an illustration of should uh, of whether of what would happen should something like this take place today based on their argument. So it's not an argument about the law. It's an illustration about what Tom and Felipe's legal position would look like in a situation like this. Um, but uh, let's let's go to to Ukraine Russia today. I mean, I have two two main points to make in response because I think our position is clear that um, uh, this being and. Uh, an undoubted 
violation of the of the of the prohibition of the use of force and undoubted armed attack both in 2014 and today um whatever ter- territory uh, of ukraine undoubtedly of ukraine which nobody doubts except perhaps of russia and even they don't really doubt it but anyway um uh, is is taken over can be recovered by force there's there's two things that i want to say one is about the non-recognition argument which of course is very important um and top tom keeps coming back to it and and i thank him for that i agree a serious breach of the of a peremptory norm of uh of international law leads to an obligation on the rest of the international community not to recognize as lawful um the situation that um emerges from that but you saw yourself in your in your own comment uh Michal that you were like well it's been so many years don't we need to find a way out that's sort of the worry isn't it that that um that even that may weaken over time it really shouldn't but even that may weaken over time to the extent where um, people are going to say, yeah, well, we've had enough. Um, if it is bolstered by also the understanding that you can recover territory by force, that doesn't mean you have to recover territory by force. Um, and this is my final point. But if it's bolstered by this, and that's important. My final point just to reiterate, is is coming back to what Felipe said, where he's like, oh, you know, there's all sorts of alternative avenues. You can have sanctions. You have the obligation of, non, of non-recognition. You have this, you have that. You can do all sorts of things like it's happening now with, with Russia, Ukraine. Yes, you do. But that is to fundamentally misunderstand our argument because we're not saying you must use force whenever you have it, whenever you have the ability to do so to recover the territory. In fact, this this whole argument about alternative avenues, peaceful settlement, sanctions, countermeasures, reactions uh, on the part of the international community, perhaps uh, offers to settle disputes peacefully, negotiations are going on as we speak between uh, Russia and Ukraine. All these things are part of our argument. We do not deny them. In fact, we incorporate them by putting them into an assessment of necessity. And we're saying that once these have been um, exhausted, however, and, and, and many years going by without resolution, without recovery of the territory, as is happening in Cyprus, might indicate that they have been exhausted. I mean, I mean, how many rounds of negotiations have we had on the Cypriot issue and so on and so forth? Eventually, at some point, um, it, it may be uh, that a state can recover its territory by force. That's it's unfortunate. Nobody wants this. But to deny them the right to do so when they have suffered an armed attack, which has led to an unlawful occupation directly, and there is no dispute as to the sovereignty of the territory, just makes, I guess, it makes no sense to us. This doesn't mean that they have to, I repeat, or that all the arguments that Tom and Philippe made are not built into, a, into our argument through an assessment of the necessity. Um, necessity and proportionality will still be there just like everything else. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Antonios. I guess that's some kind of an encouraging message <laughs> to uh, uh, Ukrainian people today. Uh, it's not necessarily now or never. Uh, well, at least in the uh, international, uh, from an international law perspective. Uh, so I want to uh, thank you all, Felipe, Tom, Antonios, and Dapo, for participating in this EG Live uh, podcast and for offering those fascinating insights. And I want to also say thank you to the listeners. I very much enjoyed this discussion. I hope you too enjoyed crossing swords with each other. 
without making any unlawful use of force, of course. Thank you for tuning in. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to other episodes of the EGIL podcast, please visit egiltalk.org.